Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 2 of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Kelly Carpenter. Kelly has been on staff with the North Texas Conference for 12 years. She currently serves as Associate Director of the Center for Leadership Development. Her work includes supporting campus ministries and leadership development for laity and clergy. Kelly is a General Conference Delegate and she lives just east of Dallas, Texas with her husband and their child. This conversation was refreshing for me. And you'll hear Kelly say it, her story is an example of the success of UMC discipleship. From growing up in local congregations, to exploring her passion for theater, to discerning her call as a lay professional in the conference, Kelly offers us a profile that is both unique and significant as we think about the future of the church. She's seen so much of what United Methodism looks like at the institutional level, and her perspective as a seminary-educated layperson helps us think about where we have been and where we might be going in the continuing UMC. This interview left me wondering how many Kellys are out there waiting to be partners with clergy and conference leaders in reimagining what's next for us. Lots to learn in this episode, so you know what to do. Grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really great interview with Kelly Carpenter. Kelly Carpenter, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for having Uh, me here. Oh, no, thank you. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Really looking forward to hearing your story, your perspective. Um, And and I I would really love to, like, start at the beginning. Like, I'd love to hear how you became a United Methodist Christian, how God's Provenient Grace acted in your life to bring you uh, to our church. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I've i learned hearing enough call stories in the work that I do that there's not really a classic way. And also, I feel like I am the most like classic, if we were just to draw the United Methodist Church's plan for discipleship, like mm. that's me, right? Oh, yes. We need <laughs> um, to hear that. We need to hear it. Yes. So um, my dad and his parents and several generations there had been United Methodists. And so when my mom um, moved and met my dad, uh, fairly recently after she moved. Um, They started dating, got married. Anyhow, she had been, my mom is the daughter of a Southern Baptist bivocational minister. And so had grown up in the Southern Baptist church in Oklahoma, moved to El Paso, met my dad, and they started attending the United Methodist church that he and his family were already a part of. And so then we've, they've been United Methodist ever since. Um, So I spent my first six years there in that church, and then we moved to Virginia, and I didn't even know until adulthood that I didn't actually get baptized until my younger brother was born, and they baptized both of us together, and my mom has talked about part of that was that when I was born, she was still relatively new to United Methodist, infant baptism and things like that, and so um, just wasn't part of Uh, of her world yet. And so anyhow, by the time my brother came along six years later, we were both baptized together in Virginia. So I would have been seven or eight years old by then. Um, I have a pivotal memory of that church somewhere in my early childhood, early elementary years of a vacation Bible school that happened um, all outdoors in these like tents, kind of white canvas tents. And you went to one and you made the pretzel and you went to another one and you made um, pottery. And, you know, then you went to another one and you sat at the storyteller's feet. And um, just that really classic childhood children's vacation Bible school kind of experience. Um, And I think in my brain because it was outdoors and a couple of years later in mid elementary school, we moved to Arizona. Um, and then I now reside in Texas. And so outdoor vacation Bible school in the summer is not a thing that happens. There is nowhere else that that picture memory of sitting outside in the summer under tall trees could exist. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, 
I even question it being it happening in Virginia, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe um, like the eighties. Maybe we had a nice cool week of <laughs> of summer, even in Virginia Beach. <laughs> oh gosh! Wow. So, I you know I didn't grow up United Methodist. Um, I came into the denomination as an adult, but you being raised in this denomination. Did you get a sense of the particularities of being United Methodist as you were growing up? Or did it did it just seem like, well, that person goes to that church, that person goes to that church, and I go to this church, and that's just just how it is? Um I think I did like once I'm a youth, right? And I go through confirmation and then get really involved in high school and district and conference and jurisdictional wide sort of things. I think at that point I was just so hyper into it all that I had an awareness, right? That there was more reasons why people went to different churches. Um, I'm not sure at what point I could have named some of the beliefs that went along with that. But um, yeah, when we moved, so we moved a lot, that's part of my story, right? And um, every time it was part of the move was to find a United Methodist Church, particularly one that had a choir, which was my mom's interest and either solid children or youth programming. Um, and so we went in looking for those things. Uh, so I, therefore I was really blessed with having participated in congregations that had um, great age level ministries and really great choir or fine arts ministries. And that's a huge part of my story. Yeah. So you're growing up United Methodist. Um, when Do you have a memory of when faith became real and personal for you? Um, and maybe that was during confirmation, but maybe it was at a different at a different point in the journey. Um, I don't because on the whole, it's all such positive memory and sort of a part of who we were in life. Um, I don't know that I have that moment that it became independent for me. Um, it was it was intertwined in the experiences of um, just the weekly rhythm, um, mm-hmm. being in church, being in ministries, um, in how I took that into my school in in ways in ways that were different than others did um, from their church experiences. Um, I guess I'm thinking out of high school, that's where I definitely have have an understanding of sort of folks that went to some of the different, either the other United Methodist churches in the area or the other um, denominations and Mormon. We had a significant Mormon population in high school Mm -hmm. and they would would have different classes right across the street from the high school. And so, um, God, it's just consistent along that, Derek. And then there's, maybe there's moments, you know, classic again classic like at camp um at our different camps in the desert southwest conference um vacation bible school mission trips you know Mm -hmm. did this year service project and things like that um there's definitely times within all of that 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 were wholly um a chrysalis journey you know and then sponsoring my parents on their Emmaus walks which i don't think was allowed um being trained as a stephen minister as a teenager which i don't think stephen ministry was ever excited about but we did it Mm. anyhow you know um (laughs) It's just all tied into all of those little things. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you're a lay person working in the conference now. And so I'm wondering, you know, when you were a teenager doing all of these different things, did you, did you see that for yourself? Um, and uh, the follow-up is, did you see people that would be an inspiration for you later on in life as you were growing up? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I mean, no and yes and yes are the answers <laughs> to your questions. So yeah. uh, no, I didn't. And I, um, I've i reflected a lot because I have been told, right, when you start, when you're this involved in church and um, especially as I got into district and conference stuff, right, there were amazing humans as I look back and teach people to do this, talking to me about my calling, um, you know, when you're a pastor someday, when you're da-da, when you're, you know, in conference roles or whatnot. And I was just like, I, I don't think so. And I had always wanted to be a teacher. Um, I th- 
do you want me to insert my call story here? Let's um, go. Let's okay. go. And yeah. then I can answer yeah. your influential people questions kind of tied in it. Um, mm-hmm. I had always wanted to be a teacher. And then my junior year, I'm sitting at um, Christ Church United Methodist in Tucson, Arizona. We'd been there since the seventh grade, eighth grade, since the eighth grade. And they had this huge Christmas pageant called Follow the Star. And the young teen girls typically were the angels fluttering through the aisles. And he has them sitting in rehearsals and decided this is what I want to do. I cannot sing. I am not musical at, at all. And the only thing fine arts in the United Methodist Church or maybe the church at large, right, is choirs and singing. And so here I am sitting in this production being like, I want to do this. I want to tell our stories um, with this sort of passion and drama and professionalism that was brought to this Christmas production. Um, we have such good stories and I, we don't do them good service in the theatrical world, was my opinion. Having never taken a theater class, I mean, I just just like the audacity of it all, like looking back on your year, Kelly self, but I did. So, um, so I changed course. So junior year, I then enrolled in like um, two theater classes for my senior year of high school. I had continued to sing in the choir, but um, I was the, it was by the grace of choir teachers that I sang in a choir um, <laughs> and went to TCU, got a degree in theater, um, decided that I had had a lot of church. And so I would start with theater, um, do a degree in theater and then work a little bit, discern my next steps and then do seminary with the intent of that, just supplementing my ability to do really great um, Wesleyan based stories of God's love and uh, for the world and through a theater. And so I did. Um, I did exactly that. I worked for a while in Texas. Um, I had gone to TCU, have a BFA in theater and scene design and directing. Um, did AmeriCorps for a year, came back to Texas, was working part-time in a Methodist United Methodist Church in near Austin and dabbling part-time in the theater scene. And then decided it was time to go to seminary and went and got a master's of theological studies in religion and art at the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley. California. And so was able to study with just some incredible um, improvisation, dance, theater. Um, Dr. Doug Adams was there my first year. And then um, Cynthia Witten Henry, just all kinds of folks. Um, I don't even know if those names resonate for a whole lot of people because there's so few of us that went to PSR, but um, just wonderful folks. And accidentally ended up under Andrea Bieler, um, who is a wonderful German professor professor who taught me bibliodrama. Um, And so this act of like delving into the white spaces between the text and bringing it to life. Um, So anyhow, I just thought that was it. I wrote my thesis. I did a production of the Vagina Monologues and then wrote about just using um, faculty and students as part of that production. And um, I was set. I was going to do this theater drama uh, blend. And then I started working for the church, moved back to, Tex- to Texas, uh, looked all over the world for a job, started working for the United Methodist Church, uh, coordinating worship. Um, and so I stumbled, right? I still dabbled in theater, um, went to work part-time for a Wesley Foundation and still worship in the church, and then ended up in this like a quarter-time job on the annual conference staff. Um, and I came to a point in 2014 where I was offered a full-time job somewhat doing my dream of arts in a local congregation that um, I I don't know, like it would have been risky just like the call was from the very beginning when I was a junior sitting in that pew, like who does theater full-time in the United Methodist Church, right? Like that's an unheard of profession that I had uh, pursued after and an offer to come on conference staff full-time. And I just do a lot of praying and discernment and somehow it hearkened back to some of the 16 years that I had wanted to teach um, and to be able to give to um, kind of a population of young people who were just really bought into something, I think was at the core of why I wanted to teach. Um, And so the work at the conference center with children and youth and their leaders um, was that again. Um, And so, um, so I took it. and it's been wonderful and I've loved it. Um, but yeah, it's been a, a twisty, turvy road. So, so I'd love to hear a bit about bibliodrama. Yeah. That's actually a term that's somewhere back in my mind. Yeah. But, but uh, unpack that a little bit for me and, and, and how, how that, that, the power of that uh, yeah. way of, of 
unpack for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll try to. You know, I did it a lot when I first got here, and then it's not been something I've practiced. It's interesting that it came up for me in my story today. Mm-hmm. Um, so this... Um, it's similar in fields if people know other fields like psychodrama and other places, right? And so taking um, somewhat of the improv uh, basics, um, but inserting them into sort of an already given outline, right? And so if the biblical text is our outline, so I can remember, you know, doing one of the healing stories in the Bible and talking about, okay, these are the explicit characters we see, who's going to take on those roles? Okay, then who are the implicit characters that we can assume we're around, right? Like so often in the Bible, we know that like there were you know 500 men there and so there were probably a thousand women and children there or something of that nature right like so who else is there so then you have these characters that are both there and not there and you start with the text and then you start to play it out and be like okay what may have happened here um and see you know like in a healing story there's the the primary character of the person that was healed um were there other people in the crowd that also needed healing and witnessed this and um and how did they feel and you know and and there's a multitude of that. No one person's going to respond the same way. And so you just sort of kind of get yourself into the Bible in different ways. Um, and then you come out of it and you debrief from it and you talk about that experience and, you know, okay, what was in the text and where did we go from the text? And, um, you know, I don't know if I agree that that, you know, is, is really how that may have played out or, you know, this is how that helps my understanding of God. Um and that's just always been, I, I mean, I'm privileged in my journey with United Methodism that questions and exploration and how your experience and reason, right, fit in with tradition and scripture and all of that wove together. And bibliodrama just magnified that for me um, as a way to explore scripture um, in a really deep way. I'm going to move along. I just. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. Can I, I don't want to miss a p- part of the call narrative that you asked about influential people. Because uh, yeah. I think that's also part of the really, really privileged part of my journey um, is some of the people that, that were explicitly in the church world along the way. Is that mm-hmm. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I mentioned like, Baptism as a child, confirmation, and then we moved to Tucson. And I had a series of youth directors that were fantastic um, and ended up in conference work. And so um, two of the youth directors, um, I still get to see some more than others. And one is Matthew Ashley, who's still a pastor in the Desert Southwest Annual Conference. And then another one is Anthony Tang. and so I've been, I was blessed by them. I also, when I started conference leadership in Desert Southwest, CCYM, Conference Council on Youth Ministry, and ended up an officer my senior year on that, um, Amy Valdez Barker was the conference staff person leading that. Um, it's a deacon woman in the United Methodist Church. Um, I had a female pastor when um, it's in several places and especially in conference work. Um, I, so I just, it's important to me that again, my privileged nature of growing up in these places is that I saw women in clergy leadership, deacon and elder, um, or at least on that path in their life. Um, significant lay leadership, like I said, being in Stephen ministry and youth groups that had staff youth directors and really committed um, lay people, especially three couples um, in Tucson that were just consistent. And even though youth directors came and went uh, with college and seminary and things like that, there were these couples that always led into us. Um, so I just feel really privileged that um, I really do feel like so laity that work at the conference, or I don't know, laity that are highly involved, especially professionally in the church, um, a lot of times they're asked, like, are you running from your call? Or when are you going to, you know, start the path? And I joke that they finally put me on the board of ordained ministry. So I guess they've given up on me, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't, I truly, and I've gotten to understand my call more and more as life has played out, that I have been intently at each intersection that offered me a path to lay or clergy, like taken the next faithful step um, and and had the faith in that. And so maybe that's the answer back to your question of like pivotal faith moments. For me, it's probably in discernment. Um, and when I had these big moments, like sitting in that church, going from teacher to theater, and then, okay, how do I do that? The Wesley Foundation and the and the opportunities it offered me in undergrad um, 
I do believe that I have intently gone to um, faithful mentors, family and friends and God in discernment at each of those paths that have continued to lead me down a life of lay leadership in the church. Do you spend a lot of time validating the role of laity in the church? Um, probably. I think I like to use the work of honoring and lifting up and, <laughs> and things <laughs> yeah. like this, empowering and equipping. Um, and, and even more and more so, this is a com conversation right now in our center, you know, exactly what are we doing? How are we um, lifting up our laity and our lay leadership? And so, um, yes, um, and gathering the others who specifically the seminary trained um, or the longtime professional, uh, what I call professional laity, right? People that have worked for the institutional church or local church um, and sharing their stories and their call stories. And so um, my answer would have been much more yes to that validating answer several years ago. And now I feel like that's just a part of the conversation. When I run a candidacy summit, I always include a layperson, a local pastor, a deacon, and an elder, right? That even at the point mm -hmm. that you've arrived at candidacy summit, um, which for us is after your SPRC has approved your journey, your district superintendent has put you on the candidacy track, like even still our vocational discernment is going to lead us to where our gifts and graces meet the needs of the world, right? Guided by God's discernment. And that may be laity, local pastor, deacon, elder, any of the credentialing paths of a layperson uh, through mm -hmm. all the branches of the church um, yeah. at any point in time. Yeah. Mm. So take me on the journey um, into the conference office. Um, you're working full time at a local congregation. Mm -hmm. And again, is there the title creative arts ministry director or? Okay, yeah, so let me see, what am I doing? So I, um, I was part-time, I'm trying to think of the hopscotch because I was putting part-time things together. So I was part-time mm -hmm. at, at the local church that I came here after seminary for and um, so when it just came out of seminary, I'm part-time at a local church. I don't know what my title was, but I was coordinating a contemporary worship service that had an, had an incredibly talented band. And so it was a perfect uh, combination because the some of the fear in when the associate pastor posted for my job was that um, they would bring in a musician and the band really loved their work, all volunteer lay band and so much musical talent. And so I was perfect because I didn't have any of that. However, I had the resources to help them do the logistical stuff they didn't want to. Anyhow, okay, I've gone off, I've digressed. So um, yes, coordinating contemporary worship, um, which was really a director, stage manager type of skill set from my theater training. That's the point of that part of the story. I had the musician, I had the preacher, the people to do the things. I was just helping bring it all together in a mm -hmm. cohesive creative that. vision. Mm -hmm. uh, building houses for Habitat, working part-time in the theater, working part-time at the church. Then I move and become part-time at the TC Wesley Foundation doing some administrative stuff. Um, and that's when I went conference staff part-time and then I'm in a local church part-time. So those first kind of few years of conference staff, I'm still in a local, in a different local church um, helping to coordinate um and a lot of set design type of work in that particular context, but also coordinating all of the elements together of a paid band and a, a, a just a little um, different level of resources in their work there. Um, and so in conference staff, I've, I was brought on after the North Texas Conference reorganized um, to primarily um, facilitate the work of CCYM, of Conference Council on Youth Ministry. And so I kid you not, my experience in the interview was, I was on it. <laughs> And I know a lot has changed now, and I'm happy to facilitate the work of the current youth and their and their leadership, um, and to gather children's workers and youth workers together for networking and connection. I mean, that was like the basic tenets of my quarter time position that I would come in for. Um, and so I built up those relationships, and we were doing that work and um, supporting in North Texas. There's a um, 
midwinter so your conference council on youth ministry leads these weekend retreats in february um it's a primary part youth annual conference was still a thing when i first started and so a mock version um where youth worked on legislation and then some of that went to annual conference so they had their own prep event locally um so yeah doing that kind of thing eventually um as the conference is living into their restructuring. They moved me up to halftime. And then um, in 2014, um, that's when I had that choice between that local church I had still been doing part-time creative work for and um, the conference and um, just felt through a whole lot of things that were going on um, situationally and what I described in my call story that um, taking the conference job was what I should do. And so I did. And you've been in this conference role for? Yeah, so I did that. So I did children, youth, young adults, dabbled in camping and retreat for a while, did a, you know, a um, strategic plan for our campgrounds and camping retreat ministry. Um, so came on in 2011 as that quarter time job. 2014 is when I went full time. And then in the summer of 2017, I became the associate director um, and have been the associate director since then. What are some of the joys, but also some of the challenges of working in the conference office as opposed to the local church for you? I think somewhere in me, the root of my calling has always been in this, I think I mentioned earlier, kind of equipping people that are specifically called to go deep in a certain area and to have the honor to do that in the church, which has been such a formative part of my experience in life. Um, that's It's just such a joy and to, um, to continue to not have to be the expert in, in a lot of the areas that I resource. Um, while having gained some wisdom and some experience over the years in some of the areas, um, getting to just lift up people and equip people, um, wh whether that be lay or clergy, whether that be for one specific thing or for what turns out to be a longer tenure, um, getting to sit down with people and just like, let me t tell you, you tell me your life story, basically, right? Like, let's hear your call story if we want to discern like where you're going next. Um, I, it's an honor and an absolute joy um, to listen, to just stand in that space of discernment and try to ask some good questions uh, along the way to help people figure out what, what God's doing in their life in that season. Uh, it's incredible. Um, some of the cons, um, well, I had to find my own church for the first time since childhood as an adult, as a 30-something adult, and that was a trek, and I thankfully uh, did, and I go to Union Coffee, and it's just um, an amazing community. Um, so that was new, <laughs> uh, and a whole journey on itself. Um, there, it's a different sort of use of the arts. And so I have great people that ask me regularly, you know, what are you doing to serve that part of your life? Um, and that answer is different seasonally, but I think there's still a part of me that, um, that would like to flow more in and out of using my like explicit arts, um, theater design sort of skills. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Some of the other struggles are the same. I think in some ways, um, my congregation is the pastors and lay leadership of the annual conference in the way that when I was at a local church, right, my congregation was the, the people and the leadership that I worked with in the worship coordinating that I did. And so um, I still have some of those types of experiences and relationships with people that I get to be in ongoing work with, um, like I did at the local church. Um, I did that at conference, I guess conference work is probably what's led me back into general church work, um, which has its ups and downs as anyone can imagine. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm curious, there aren't very many um, lay professionals in the church, or maybe there are, and I just don't know this, but it seems to me that it's unique for you to have a seminary degree as a layperson who is also working in the institution of the, the church as opposed to working in the seminary or even 
some very specific roles within a local church. That feels unique to me. Hmm. Maybe it's not, and I'm just not aware. But do you feel like because you have seminary training, because you you have experienced that, does that sort of decrease the distance between you as a layperson and what what the clergy are bringing, you know, to the conversation? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I, I don't have the experience of not having that. And so it, it's hard to speak objectively. But yes, I would imagine that it has. I'm able to. Um, it probably has allowed me more ability to work in areas like discernment and the Board of Ordained Ministry because I'm um, a, a seminary level conversant in theology and things like that. And also quick to say, like, I took the classes and I am conversant in them and I'm not the theologian in the room and I'm not the preacher in the room. Mm. Um, and so, um, yeah, I would say close the gap and has probably given me some opportunities, um, having succeeded in other skill sets that I carry, um, but still being a layperson to be in roles that were previously held by clergy and uh, to my management probably will be after me. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you get the, so Kelly, we know you've been in this role for a while, but have you, are you considering ordination? <laughs> I love it. Good on you. I am not. No, I really um, am probably clearer now than I have been in a long time about um, what I can do and what I'm called to do. Um, and preaching is a significant part of that. Um, and so I think, um, I guess I say the only asterisk I have to that conversation is as we, uh, as we talk through the orders um, and there's potentially an order um, that's, that's called in a way that, that includes proclamation of the word, um, but in a, in a way that's not understood as regular preaching. Um, I don't know. That might give me pause. However, um, that the life that I've been able to live as a layperson and the way I've been able to witness the covenant and that call and, um, and as you know, been very inspired by your own calling um, as laity. Um, I know that changes over time, but I feel really settled that this is, this is where God has, has me and needs me. Um, and I guess simultaneously, Derek, I joke about, you know, um, when I'm, beyond wanting to be full-time employed and if I get to have my dream house out in the country by a lake and they need a, a local pastor to hang out with a little church out there then maybe maybe but um who knows yeah no I get you out when I get my beach house in Maine I was like yeah I'll take a local pastor right. yeah, yeah like it's cool like yeah yeah no I, I I you know I asked that question in part because and you've named this already but there is this way that I don't think it's just, I don't think it's unique to United Methodism. Um, when a human exhibits very specific gifts, it seems to me that the only way we know how to affirm those gifts is to say, you should be an ordained clergy person. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I imagine through your life, as it has been through my life, that has been the way that the church has celebrated me by saying, gosh, you're so good at mm -hmm. this. You should do that. And to have to step back and say, actually, I appreciate that you see this gift, but I don't feel called down that road. Yeah. Um, and like you, the longer I have walked this road and even experiencing the Board of Ordained Ministry um, as a member of it and walking alongside college students who have um, become local pastors and deacons and elders, I'm even more convinced that I am not called to it, though my appreciation for those orders has grown dramatically. Yep. Um, there is a very special place for the lay professional in the life of the church. Mm -hmm. We'll I agree to. wholeheartedly. Um, yeah. And I think, and you named it, even the, uh, by being adjacent to walking through all of these people with their call stories, you do the self-reflection, I do the self-reflection along the way. And it, it does, it makes it deeper. And to know um, there's, 
I mean, what is it? 98% of the church, I should know that math, right? Is laity. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And so to have us have lay people in these significant employed positions in the conference, um, it helps uh, to round out the perspective uh, of leadership and um, put in action. I really value the North Texas conferences put in action, you know, lay leadership and this example uh, um, that we do value it in roles that can be filled by clergy and could be filled um, by and, and open for a full-time appointment. Right. Um, and also my voice as a lay person is different. My calling is different. Um, am I capable of doing the things of a pastor? Um, yeah, I think I'm capable, but has God called me into that specific realm? I, that sense of calling by God is the third. Like, do I have affirmation from other people? Yeah. I think I have the gifts for it. Yeah. Um, do I think God has called me into one of those orders? I, I don't. And I think that's a significant part. Um, I want to hear it in my candidates and I don't think I could faithfully articulate it. That's not how God, whatever that innate sense of knowing is and however you hear God's voice within you, um, I don't hear it calling, calling me to ordination. Mm-hmm. So as you look back over your tenure with a lot of runway ahead as well, is there anything that you would have, that you would say to your to that junior sitting in the pew <laughs> at the Christmas pageant rehearsal. <laughs> Is there anything you would say to her um, hmm. looking back? Um, I, in some ways, man, she was far more creative and courageous than I am today. And so I just kind of want to leave her alone. Yeah. Um, now what I will do is go back to seminary self and say, do go take United Methodist History, Doctrine, and Polity <laughs> with the future Bishop Karen Olivetto. Yeah. You're going to need that. And uh, that is the one thing I know 100% I would tell myself and act upon that I did not do. Um. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's so great. Let's take a quick break. Kelly, this uh, you know podcast is called Bar of the Conference. It is a conversation about the stories that general conference delegates um, are taking with them into the Bar of the Conference, the General Conference 2024, um, and the story that then is cultivated about the future of the United Methodist Church. Um, and this is just one piece of that big story, that conference piece, um, but that's kind of the project that I'm working on here with this podcast. And I've often mostly reflected on the events of the special session in 2019 in these interviews, because I do believe that it is a pivotal moment for our church and for the story of our church. And so I'm wondering, um, were you in the room at the special session mm-hmm. um, in 2019? Delegate. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, uh, your personal reflections and thoughts of the passage of the traditional plan um, at that special session. What was your takeaway from that moment? Hmm. Yeah, I think one of those moments that is fortunately and unfortunately ingrained in memory, right? That point in time, like several massive events are. Um, yeah, so I was a lay delegate, um, 16 and 19. 16 was my first time. Um, so 19, I remember being on the floor and in that moment. And as the thinking part knew what was coming and the ever hopeful um, idealist uh, in, the, um, in life and especially in the church, uh, wasn't ready for it. And so I, you know, the sinking feeling, um, and knowing the plan to move forward, um, to gather at the center of the room. Right. And what didn't realize, um, 
how healing that would be to just be able to step away um, from the delegation and the table and the dynamic work we had been trying to do between our own varying um, votes and beliefs and understanding mm-hmm. and um, and go to the center of the room and see faces from um, across my history, having you know moved across and several of those folks being there and people I had just met and people I didn't know at all. Um, and just standing in that space together and trying to to share and hold um, the tension of what was going on um, mm-hmm. and the, the the phone full of texts and messages right from people that are watching from far away um, that I had left. I think I had left it at my table. I don't have a cognizant moment of it being up there in the middle with me, but knowing that not just the people in the room, but that there were people across the world um, journeying with us and watching with us and having varying reactions as well. Um, It was heavy and it was connectional um, and it was heartbreaking and, um, and everything. I mean, it was just this, yeah, this fully encompassing moment um, that felt like defeat and also um, felt like, um, I guess, what it led to, which was um, we have to keep conversing. We have to keep figuring out um, how we do this and whether that's any multitude of populations of how we do this, right? Um, but that we, ha- we have to figure out how United Methodism exists um, somehow in some varying forms um, for the world so that all, all the people can use Wesleyan theology to grow closer to God if that's the theology that helps them connect most to God. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the diversity of the North Texas delegation at that time. I'm sure there's a... Uh, a, a little bit of a different makeup now, but at that time, t- tell me about that diversity of your delegation and what it was like to experience the lead up to the special session and then, you know, just after mm-hmm. the special session. Yeah, so our delegation had, um, has, I mean, ideological at that point, um, uh, kind of honestly, unfortunately, at this point, we're not as ideologically diverse in the delegation. We did have that swath of center to progressive elections, like Mm -hmm. many did. But then we definitely had folks that carry a conservative traditionalist view, um, have since gone to the GNC um, as part of their um, way to live out their faith in the world. And so, um, yeah, so there was the ideological mix. Um, and I would say we're, we're representative in that kind of 80% center and then 10 to 20 on either um, more strong conservative or progressive leaning um, representation. And we had some brand new folks like me, uh, you know, I, by 19, it was my second <laughs> general conference, but 16 had been my first and what Same. I called generational Same. delegates. And so delegates whose, uh, parent before them had also been a delegate. And so someone in their direct lineage had served on the North Texas delegation for mm. all of the quadrennium. And so brought a whole different experience and understanding to the work that we, we were going for. Um, in so many ways, um, the one person that um, has since moved to the GMC uh, and I, and I'm part of a, a very progressive, um, fully inclusive, affirming congregation and have been, and um, where she was the person that at so many times I actually felt closest to, though our theological frameworks were the most different on the delegation. Um, our experience not being in that 80 was oftentimes very similar. Um, we were hurt in different moments, right? We were happy mm. in different moments. However, our um, being someone on the outside of the majority um, was resonated. And for me, and um, she had more experience in the church as a mentor. And so um, there's just the beauty in that, that I hold and like why we're trying to do this together, that for me, our ideological beliefs was something that we could still participate in the same church. And there was so much about leadership and faith and um, interpersonal interactions that I learned from her um, along the way. Wow. So 
at this point, you're working full-time in the conference, right? I am, yes. And so there's a way of leaving this historic moment of the passage of the traditional plan where a person has to go back to their local church and sort of speak to their local congregation about what happened. And I imagine you did a little bit of that, but you are going back to the conference office and you are potentially speaking to people across your conference, which if it's like any normal United Methodist conference is full of diversity and perspective. And you have some folks who were in the room, in the rafters at the special session, Mm -hmm. calling you folks who were glued to their laptops, watching the live stream. And then folks who saw a newspaper article, you know, afterwards, and maybe even folks who are like, you went to St. Louis last week? (laughs) Yeah. What were you doing? Yeah. (laughs) What was it like to come back to a conference position carrying this information and this experience? Yeah. Um, I have too many thoughts and too many words. And it, and it was that because Mm -hmm. um, what I have learned in this process and perhaps known because I've gotten to have some general church experiences along my whole life is how incredibly complicated um, the global church, I I mean, just structure aside, you know, this um, immense uh, creation that we've put together of representation from across the world. And they just almost unimaginable because I haven't gotten to travel as much as I want and really see it. And so I just know it from learning and thought that different ways that we experience the world, that we live in the world, that everything in the world is completely different um, from here to, um, you know, the Congo to the Philippines, to Eastern Europe, to Russia um, is just so wildly different. And all of that is intertwined in the conversation. And so to come back and want to hold up, all of it <laughs> for folks um, that was challenging. And also it was, f- I don't know if I can say freeing Derek. I don't know what the word is to put on this, that um, I guess that the beauty in the mess to some extent, right. That like we are really trying to do a really hard thing and really trying to do the really hard steps along the way Um that's beautiful um, that it, you know, God has called us to walk through um, yeah. those places. Well. So the next few months after a special session, there was a, a response that was emerging across the U.S. portion of the UMC that led to several annual conferences electing a great majority of centrist and progressive uh, identified, self-identified centrist and progressives to delegations. Um, That's what happened in Florida um, and in other annual conferences. What was, what happened at North Texas? and, And I'm specifically interested in the unique direct responses to the passage of the traditional plan in your conference? What, what was, what happened in that space? Yeah, I can remember, um, you know, in kind of the immediate after um, a group of clergy and our churches, specifically our reconciling ministry churches, put out a full page in the um, primary newspaper in the area um, called, renewing support for our LGBTQ population in the midst of this and that, you know, um, and yeah, that all of the headlines going around, we are still actually in a very complicated conversation about um, how people can express their faith in various ways. Um, so there was that response. And then there was the same with the election that you talked about, right? We had been a, um, a more diverse with some conservative voices, but we had been a predominantly centrist um delegation before. And so I think we definitely um, didn't elect conservative voices, um, which again, I think uh, I'm remiss about. I wish we had more of those in our delegation and um, and more centrist to progressive, of course, across the board. Um, we also passed a resolution that year 
that I should have written down the name for Derek, um, but it was a resolution that was essentially in line with what had been proposed as the one church plan um, for those that are familiar. And so um, continuing in North Texas to reinstate this um, desire to move towards inclusion for full inclusion for our LGBTQ population, marriage in our churches for them and ordination, right? Um, as well as holding space um, for our folks that have a different scriptural understanding um, of the LGBTQ. And so um, we passed a resolution that um, was just calling us to try to continue to live into that. And people more now are calling it big tent uh, sort of understanding. Um, and that really guided the work at, at the conference. Um, and how do we um, both and, how do we support both and our reconciling churches and our um, more conservative churches or um, before all of the affiliation come up, right? The good news type of churches is kind of the affiliation that they had at the time. Um, and our broad context of centrist churches that are full of people um, as diverse as the conference, right? These We have so many churches in North Texas that are just a micro representation of the full 100% that every view is contained within that congregation. Mm -hmm. This is like cart before the horse a little bit in this question, but how do we do that? I mean, how do, how do you think we... I want to believe it's possible that these multiple perspectives, particularly around human sexuality, but are definitely downstream of other theological and philosophical commitments. How do we, is it possible to live together? I mean, I think it is, but do you think it is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do perhaps to a certain extent. And at some point, right, if, um, especially if your essential humanity is being impeded, um, then it's not, it's not possible. Um, and, um, and if it's significantly, I have to go to, if it is coming between your relationship with God and your walk with Jesus, um, then I, I want you to find a faith community that is not going to come between you and Jesus, right? I, I want that discipleship journey for you, that faith journey for you um, to, to be whole and to be real. Um, and I hope that uh, a person's walk in faith with God and Jesus and, or in, in a multitude of ways, religious lives, faith lives out itself in the world, whatever that is for you, um, leads to um, love and compassion for people who see and understand um, faith differently. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, so I think it's different. You know, I think some people can... Um, can meet God and can worship God. You know, the worship wars, because I was a worship coordinator for so long, right? And oh, so I'm yeah, constantly yeah. involved with what we call the worship wars, which is like mm -hmm. traditional versus conservative versus blended versus Iona versus da 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 And can like, can we all come together and do something that like has a bunch of things? That just expands out to like, um, I was trying to visit around to some churches and we have several that have services in English and in other languages. And so um, this church was primarily Korean speaking and has a bilingual service. And I a hundred percent thought I had like done the translation and figured out to go to the bilingual service. And I wasn't, I was in the fully Korean speaking service, which I do not at all um, read, speak, or understand. And yet it was a United Methodist worship service. And so I knew what we were doing at each moment, just because the essence of the ritual was what I had known my whole life. Um, could I go there every week? Probably not. I needed, I do need, want to be fed and want to hear and want to be challenged um, mm -hmm. by message and language I understand. If I had it translated, sure. Um, so for me, I can do that in different places. I, there's others that like go to contemplative worship and it's just like not there for them or go hear a choir and an organ and it's not there for them by band, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, I've gotten on a worship board tangent to say, I it's so different per human. And I wish each human would be able um, to feel empowered to choose the place that's right for them and not feel the need to tell everyone else what's what they need to do. Yeah, yeah. So annual conference happens. 
then we get word of the protocol, uh, then COVID, delayed general conference, delayed general conference again, and then we delay it again in the launch of the GMC. And then we're in seasons of disaffiliation. What's been the impact of the last few years um, for you personally, but also for mm -hmm. the North Texas Conference? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, in the work I'm doing, um, we've been intentionally somewhat shielded from the depths of the disaffiliation work. And so as they kind of divided who needed to do the conversations and who needed to be part of whatnot, um, my role and several of the roles in my center um, were not included um, as people to resource in those conversations that our job was to focus on continuing to build out. Um, we do where a lot of the programming, right, for laying clergy across the conference. And so continuing to build that out in a way that, um, I mean, met the returning COVID uh, roller coaster and then had since, you know, the people getting back to creating these rhythms in their life. Um, so I've been um, shielded from it in some ways, um, from a real deep personal perspective of it. Um, in North Texas, we've had, I want to say, just under 50 uh, disaffiliate so far. And we have um, a literal handful, I want to say, um, in current conversations on disaffiliation. Um, and so it's, I think it, I don't even know the percentages, 8 to 12% or something like that in our congregations. Um, some of those were churches that participated broadly in conference events. And so um, in my role, I feel that loss because it's people that I was in relationship with and was doing events with and they're not there anymore to do that. Um, and others, um, a lot of them, they were not participating in conference events. And so they weren't churches that I knew as well. I still grieve and kind of feel the loss of knowing that that church isn't in that community anymore um, as a United Methodist church. Um, again, because that's... Uh, been having the cross and flame for my whole life and generations before me. So there's something special to me when I drive through a small town and see the, the United Methodist logo there um, that's not anymore. Um, so on the whole, um, it's definitely had impact. It's definitely um, not, uh, not to the degree that it has in other places, for sure. Even our neighbor conferences in Texas itself have had wildly different experiences than we have. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with leadership over the years, really trying to hold in balance um, what we talked about earlier, the, um, the big tent, the we can be all th several things within the United Methodist and our understanding of human sexuality, particularly, and interpretation of scripture and such things together. Um, and a grace, if you can't, um, to do what you need to do um, to walk with God. Um, uh, leadership has done that really well over the years. And so I think that's shown in what we've been able to keep um, still a body fighting for what I call as, as someone myself who wants full inclusion, um, a fight for justice, um, and the ability to, to be in a big church together, um, wherever you are on the journey for full inclusion. I think it's remarkable, the, the, the number of disaffiliations in North Texas in comparison to the other Texas conferences um, seems to me that North Texas um, may have the least number of disaffiliations um, of those conferences. What, what accounts in your mind for that in, as it relates to the other conferences in Texas? I, mean, I think East Texas may have, um, I don't even know what the right, right percentage, but I think it's a high percentage. The Texas conference, which is yeah. the Houston area, the area. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think it's close to half down there. Yeah. What, what, what do you think accounts for North Texas? Feels like it's a bit of an outlier in that region. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah. Wow. People that have really, I mean, I've only speculated. So I, and as you know, my personality type, it's hard to just throw speculations out onto an interview, but. Um, <laughs> Same. Um, I'm asking these questions and I'm like, I would never answer that. <laughs> yeah. So I think some of it is the intentional work that we've done um, to, to articulate ourselves and to try almost whether we knew it or not to experiment with what we're really conversant now in calling contextualized ministry and understanding that if you're looking for a fully reconciling church, um, at least in my experience, people are, are happy to say, we know where those are and you might find a home here. And if you're, um, if you have a more conservative Wesleyan theology, then you might find a home in these churches. Or if you're looking for X kind of programmatic with a, you know, theology, Wesleyan theology here, you know, like, I think um, at least in the way I've, done my work, um, have been happy to help people connect within the connection to the church. Um, but so, um, so we're learning to exist with each other within that. And we have done work across several different areas as far as our journey to racial justice, making statements around, um, uh, all kinds of work that intermixes, you know, the social work with the United Methodist theology that is, um, you know, the social holiness that we're called to. Um, I have really seen North Texas do that a lot. And so for folks that that's not essential to their faith journey, I, they, we were just already doing all of that work. I think it's a whole that has led us either, um, my speculatory thoughts are leadership, like I mentioned before. And so I think we can see in some of the conferences um, that had a more significant amount of disaffiliation, um, leadership has also disaffiliated um, high-level leadership with that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we mm -hmm. see what it looks like to have um, where people lead from, right? Um, or who gets elevated into leadership, I guess, like matched the conference, right? So yeah. you elevated people into leadership that they were, I guess, clearly representative of the conference because then they had a kind of equal amount of disaffiliation. Um, the people that are elevated to leadership here are working hard for this sort of integrated being. And so I think that shows. Um, I wonder what the matching, I don't know, so speculation is, I wonder what the matching is just in the Texas overall demographics in um, politics and socioeconomics and all of the other things are very small piece of the 300 churches in a very small geographic area that's centered in Dallas, Texas um, is different, right? Than the nature of these conferences that are spread across um, Lubbock and the Panhandle, Fort Worth and kind of those West Texas valleys, Rio and the Valley and Houston and, um, you know, the Gulf. Like those are just, there's some correlation there, right, between the types of people and the beliefs of people in those areas and um, whether they see themselves more aligned with an independent or Global United Methodist Church or a United Methodist Church. Yeah. So we've got... General Conference 2024, well, it's General Conference 2020 taking place in 2024. You and I will be in the room, we'll be on the floor, we'll be in the bar of the conference. Kelly, what do you think General Conference 24 needs to be about? Oh, what does it need to be about? So, I really hope I've been privileged again to be a part of a lot more of the discussion beyond my own delegation in this run that I wasn't as much before. And we have talked a lot in those groups and networks about just the continual relation building and expanding leading up to general conference. And so I hope it really does is more about being a reunion right, of the, the United Methodist Family Fellowship um, that has to get some work done along the way, um, then a meet and greet of, uh, of folks that are connected but haven't known each other before. Um, that's what I hope we're about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kelly, do you have hope for the United Methodist Church going forward? Absolutely. I have so much hope. Um, 
Yes, I think, and, and some of what I've said is people are able to find themselves. And this is, I think, forced a lot of folks to ask questions about their faith and their life that they haven't asked before. And so I think as people do that deep dive, their own faith grows deeper. And when your own faith grows deeper, that shows up in the world and the people around you. And so just like the basic tenets of evangelism like will happen um, because people are going to ask themselves questions, own their own authenticity and their faith journey and that um, God's presence will shine through, right? <laughs> like Pastors would have more eloquent faith-based words for that, but um, that energy radiates in the world. And, um, and I think as we make space for more people um, to heal from the harms that religion has done, whether it be United Methodist or other, um, religion has done a lot of harm. Um, and people... Uh, still desire God, still desire faith journey, still earn for that. And I think um, there's high value in community and in ritual, um, whether that's what really high church ritual or really experimental, we're only going to do this once and it might be great or it might be awful kind of ritual <laughs> um, to help draw people towards their spirit and what the Holy Spirit is doing within them. And so I have so much hope. I have so much hope that there is still plenty of church within the United Methodist Church and beyond, um, especially for folks that um, whose understanding of scripture is very specific. And for those that, um, that need a space and need a fully inclusive space, I mean, the opportunity there is just, um, I think, wildly available to meet people where they are. Um, I've seen it already um, in specifics, right? In churches that have come to be like that we have plant that have grown out um, of churches that disaffiliated, right? These remnant populations coming together, revitalizing. We just heard a great story at a lady event recently of that, right? That like um, it, it gave us deeper faith and it brought us together in new community, even though there was heartbreak in, um, in losing these people we had done all of life with, especially in small town America, uh, particularly or small town anywhere. That's probably true, right? You do a lot of life together. And so it was heart wrenching in the disaffiliation and now right through death is resurrection. And so we, we went through the death, we mourned, we went through Holy Saturday. Don't forget Holy Saturday. Spend, you know, spend some time in mourning and then see where the resurrection. We're going to have to do that, right? I think we're still maybe in our Good Friday stage and going to have to give ourselves some Holy Saturday time um, to get to that beautiful hope that's going to come. Um, absolutely. Kelly, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Um, you have stirred my thinking um, in some profound ways. And I think in part because our roles are so similar. So I feel like I hear for every word you're saying, I'm hearing 15 <laughs> additional words because I, I just, I, I feel the depth of your perspective and um, just really grateful for your leadership and grateful for the space that you occupy. We hope you enjoyed um, the not episode. Not just in North Texas, Bar but the conference um, is produced in our by the connection. team at Wesley's Revival, uh, so a ministry thank you Studio Wesley. For Subscribe all that to you bring to the table Apple, and thanks Spotify, for joining me today. Amazon, or Google platforms. Thank you, Derek. So it's you an honor and you're an inspiration episode. to me. Thanks so to, to be here and, and to get to dialogue with time. you is, uh, is an honor and a joy. Thank you for thinking of me. Oh, absolutely.